Let's pray, and then let's get back into into Hebrews. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll be in verses 26 through 39 this morning. Jesus, thank you for your provision for our church. Thank you for leading and guiding us. Thank you for sending someone from Emmanuel Church to the Issaquah Plateau to the man's house that was looking for space for us to rent. (laughs) You're so good. You're so good, Lord. And we just acknowledge your provision, your leading. Thank you that this is your church, that you're in charge, that you care about each one of us in our beautiful city. Lord, help us to respond responsibly to your grace, to take advantage of this incredible opportunity. We pray for Emmanuel Church um, as they prepare and as they, um, I just pray that you would give us a joint vision of what it will look like to be um, working together in the same neighborhood or lead us and guide us in all of those things. And Lord, um, I pray for an excitement in our own faith. Lord, I also pray that you'd speak to us this morning through the Bible. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, um, and we'll start in verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning, after we have received the knowledge of truth, No sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? who is treated as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those early days after you received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. I'm in verse 36 now. You need, to, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive that which is promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and he will not delay. And, but my righteous one will live by faith and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. <clears throat> okay. Um, we haven't we haven't been in the book of Hebrews for quite a while, uh, for about two weeks. Um, and by way of reminder, one of the things that we've noticed in um, as the writer's purpose is trying to encourage the people he's writing to to not give up in the midst of tremendous difficulty. Um, the the title to our series is Hold Fast, Don't Give Up, and you can see the same language sprinkled throughout throughout the text. You need to persevere. You know, um, not to give up, hold, don't shrink back, press on, that kind of language. And by and large, his method of, of, of showing us this has been very lo- logical. He's been using very persuasive uh, theological arguments to inspire us to stand strong and to never give up. And in order to do this, his prim- he's primarily used um, the, re- the rhetorical tool of comparison. He's been comparing. He's trying to point out that Jesus is better, or the new covenant is better than anything related to the old covenant. And the old, the old worship culture, the old cultic worship practices are not sufficient to really change our hearts before God. In fact, he's argued that Jesus is so much better that it makes all of the old obsolete 
when it comes to a system of gaining or maintaining a relationship with God. The law, the Mosaic Code, as, as a function of a salvation system is now rejected and obsolete. When it comes to the law as wisdom and as prophecy, we Christians take it. We live by it as a, uh, for ethical reasons, to, for uh, a, a way of living in society. But as a way of salvation, it is obsolete. It's rejected. Remember, a few weeks ago, we, we talked about religion and that Jesus did not come to start the best religion in the world, but Jesus came to end religion full stop, to do away with it. But occasionally, the writer of the Hebrew uses extremely strong and solemn warnings to get this point across. You saw that in our passage today. If the old covenant, as great as it was, came with strong warnings, how much more a better covenant comes with some really strong warnings if we, if we reject it? He occasionally in this book has looked us straight in the eyes, <laughs> it seems, and warns us of the consequences of departing from faith in Jesus Christ. And this is, this is one, of, one of those passages. But we need to put it in the right context to do it justice and to avoid any misunderstandings. Last time we were in the book of Hebrews, we were talking about, if you remember, we were talking about blood. Blood represents how serious the world's problems actually are. Remember that? We talked about that. Blood was a very visceral sign of how serious sin is. It's nothing to be, um, to take lightly. It costs something dear, something innocent. Blood also reminds us that we are the problem. If there's a problem with the world, yeah, the problem with the world is me, as the song goes. And finally, blood speaks of how it is impossible for us to fix the problem on our own. We need outside help. We need someone from the outside. And making an animal sacrifice for their offenses didn't solve any problems because it could never fix the heart. That is, in a nutshell, the problem with the Old Covenant and with the Mosaic Law. It was ritualistic. It dealt with outside practices, um, ceremonially, uh, ceremonial cleansing and things like that. But it could not touch the heart. And the heart, as the Bible would say, out of the heart stems the problems of the world and the problems of life. We need something that can change us from the inside out. You can't legislate heart change, right? You can't make a rule that touches the heart. So a new covenant is what we need. It may atone for an outward act, but that's as deep as it could reach. All of those sacrifices that couldn't do anything were pointing to the sacrifice of Jesus who could, which, which could do anything everything that could really touch our heart. So with that in mind, listen again to the severity of this warning in our text this morning. Today we're going to learn three things. We're going to learn another, yet another biblical example or a biblical definition of sin. Okay, another description of sin. Remember, we, if you've sat underneath my teaching for any long while, you'll know that, that the Bible has a very complex and deep definition of sin. It won't just give you one, it'll talk about it in several ways with several metaphors and really unpack it because it's complex. Here we get another angle this morning. Secondly, we're going to learn how dangerous it is. It's why there's a warning, you know. We, um, there is a God-created a created fear. I know fear is a, it's a bad thing in our culture, and sure, it is when it's run amok in the wrong ways, but fear in and of itself is a God-created thing. There is such a thing as fear that gets us out of a burning building, right? Without fear, we would not survive. This passage is meant to um, aggravate that mechanism inside you. There's something to avoid right now because there's dangerous consequences, okay? And thirdly, he will, he will tell us how we keep ourselves from falling into it. A definition of sin, how dangerous it is, and how we can keep ourselves away from it. Um, let's read the warning one more time. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read 26 through 31. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful fear expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume 
the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses, here's his rhetorical mechanism of comparison. He's going to bring up Moses again. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Here's he's going to compare. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant and sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, it's mine to avenge, I will repay. That's God. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Do you see what I mean by a warning? Uh, I mean, it's, pretty, it's a pretty solemn warning. It, we should be shot to attention by that. That's the point. That's why he wrote it in such solemn terms. Let's take it apart piece by piece. Look at the first phrase there in verse 26 that, that reads, if we deliberately keep on sinning. Um, what does deliberately mean? I mean, in a broad sense, um, every sin is deliberate to some degree. <laughs> you know, you don't walk along and accidentally, accidentally steal something or accidentally lie. You make a choice in that split-second moment. There's a, deliberateness to, uh, there's a deliberate degree to every sin on some kind of a spectrum. Okay, But he doesn't just mean any kind of sin. Thankfully, he gets really particular here. He tells us in verse 29 exactly the sin that he's talking about. So look with me at the characteristics of the kind of willful sin that he's speaking of. Look at verse 29. He says, How much more severely do you think that someone deserves to be punished who has, here it is, trampled the Son of God underfoot? who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant and sanctified them, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. He gets very specific. He doesn't just say all deliberate sin. If you ever sin again after Jesus died, you're done. That's not what he says. He gets super specific here. First, notice that they have trampled the Son of God underfoot. When, what this means is when Jesus is, Jesus is disgraced, um, or his greatest work of redemption is rejected. Okay? His greatest accomplishment of the cross is treated with contempt. Then Jesus is being, at that point, devalued. The Bible sees the cross and Jesus as the most precious gift from heaven to mankind, the most costly, precious gift sacrificial gift that heaven could have given to mankind with the power to solve and redeem. From heaven's perspective, the cross of Jesus is not a common thing. It, is the, it should be the most awe-inspiring, humbling thing that, we could, that could ever grab and grip our souls. He's being devalued. When we make him common, he's being devalued in both who he is and what he's done. It is to use the text, it is, this is heaven's perspective, trampling the Son of God underfoot. I mean, it's graphic language. From heaven's perspective, when we do that, we are trampling the precious Son of God underfoot. Secondly, it's counting the blood of the covenant that sanctified us as a common or unholy thing. In other words, they perceive Jesus dying on the cross, they perceive his blood being shed, um, but they think of it as common. They don't think there's anything special about it. That's what that would mean. It's not really extraordinary. It's not special. It doesn't stand out. They think it's on the same level as the blood of a bull or a goat. It's just He's just one of many sacrifices that we've been doing. Or the same as the two thieves on either side of the cross. Jesus is, doesn't stand out amongst them. He's just, one of, he's just one of them. There's nothing special about the blood of Jesus. And then in verse 29 also, he gives a third aspect or a third angle to this willful sin. They've insulted the spirit of grace. Speaking of the spirit of God, they've insulted God's spirit. Um, <clears throat> what is the primary role of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament? Uh, Jesus tells us in the upper room in John chapter 16, it says when the comforter comes, um, that's a, a derivative of the word parakaleo, paraklesis, the, someone that comes alongside you, a counselor, a comforter, um, 
when the comforter comes, he will, here's his, here's his role, he, Jesus says, when the Spirit comes, he will glorify me. That's the Spirit's primary function in your life is to point you to, to glorify Jesus Christ. In other words, the Holy Spirit does a lot of things, but his primary work is to drive the gospel, the love of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ from our heads, from a cognitive, theoretical experience to drive that down into our hearts as an experience. That's what we mean when, we, when Christians say, I was saved. That very language is, is an experiential kind of language, is it not? In, in, if you take that phrase outside of Christianity, if someone on the street comes up and says, I was saved, what do you immediately think? You immediately think they, are, they almost died and then they were saved, right? Christianity is evoking the same imagery for a spiritual salvation. It's an experience. I was about to die. I was facing judgment. I was lost. And yet some power from the outside at the last minute, at every cost to himself, a hero swung into the situation and saved me, the damsel in distress, at the last minute. That's, it's telling a story. Christians, listen, here's my point. Christianity is not adhering, not only adhering to a set of doctrines. It's at least that. But it's much, much more than that. Every one of you in here, if you are a Christian, you have a salvation story. I was lost and then something happened named Jesus to where now I'm found. Do you understand that? It was an experience. That's extremely important, especially in the Bible. And when that happened to you, if you're a Christian and that happened to you and you have that story, the Bible would say that was a work and function of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit made something abstract and something cognitive and doctrinal, made it personal, experiential, existential, and real to you personally. It became a, this happened to me, not this happened 2,000 years ago, some, some obscure event in history called the, uh, the cross of Jesus. No, this happened to me, see. That's a work of the Spirit. That's what the Bible would say the Holy Spirit's job is. He takes all the good things you know and you hear about Jesus Christ and converts it from abstract knowledge to something that melts your soul and melts your heart. It's very personal. It's lovely. It's loyal. It's part of who you are. It's ingested into your system. And when somebody rejects Jesus and they reject who he is and the sacred significance of what he's accomplished on the cross, they are insulting the Holy Spirit by rejecting the Holy Spirit's testimony. So are you, getting, are you starting to get a fuller picture of the severity of this warning? You're rejecting. It's like when someone comes to save you, the damsel in distress, and the hero comes at great cost to himself to save you, and you say, get away from me. You're not going to, you can't do it. You're, 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 a, you're just a common thing. You're not a hero. You're just a, a commoner. That's the idea. How insulting is that? After he's gone through all that, you say no. So, Get the picture here. When taken together, these statements show just how serious it is to reject Jesus and his work on the cross. In this passage, the definition of sin that we get, if I could boil it down into a phrase, is anything that rejects Jesus and his work. The definition of sin in this passage is anything that, that rejects Jesus and his work on the cross. Anything. Anything that rejects Jesus and his work for our redemption is deliberate, willful, sin that needs to be avoided. That's the warning here. When you reject Jesus and his work, it's not, it's not just not nice, but you're insulting God. It's a very extreme reaction of what the Bible says. That's what, this is a view of heaven, how heaven looks at that. Now, um, our culture doesn't want to admit that a rejection of Jesus is really that extreme. 
This would be shocking to our culture. Most people play it off as a responsible choice that should be respected. Hey, you chose Jesus, that's good for you. I've chosen not to, and that's good for me. Like, you like chocolate, I like vanilla, who cares? Good for you, not good for me. And yet, the writer to the Hebrews and the Bible at large takes a much more extreme stance on this, you can see. He uses terms like, to the Bible's, from heaven's perspective, no, it's not chocolate versus vanilla. You are trampling the Son of God underfoot. You are counting the blood of the covenant an unholy thing. You are insulting the spirit of grace. This is willful, deliberate sin. Now listen, put it this way. Let's say, <clears throat> let's say you were dying and my son Noble had something biologically in his body that could save your life and I sacrificed Noble and he died so that you could have what he has to live. And let's say he went through all that and I gave up all that. And you said, yeah, I don't want it. I could not walk away in that moment and go, well, you know, to each his own. I would be very upset with you. It would be an insult to the core of my being. At that point, we would be, as this text says, enemies. You would be my enemy at that point. And that's what the text says. All you've got is a fearful expectation of the judgment of a fire that will consume the enemies of God. That's what we're talking about here. Now, if you've shared the gospel with somebody, you know that there are a few basic forms of, of rejection that people can take. Those who receive the work of Jesus, Christians, we are basically praying, when we pray to receive the Lord, we're praying something like, you know, we basically say, Lord God, I confess that my doctrine and my theological understanding is incomplete. I don't know all there is about you, right? When you first become a Christian, you have to acknowledge that. I don't know everything. My emotional love for you and affection for you is pretty cold, Christians would pray. My service and all my best deeds are tainted with selfishness to a degree, Christians could pray. Therefore, no matter how hard I try, I, 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 try, I deserve to be rejected, but... The Christian keeps praying, Jesus died my death and lived my life. And therefore, because of who he is and what he's done, I ask that you would welcome me, God, into your family. I believe in Jesus now. I rest in him. And I ask that you would welcome me for his sake. And the moment I do this, I know that I have value in life. And your life has been imputed to me. Death has gone away from me. Now, Obviously, that's pretty spelled out, uh, and most people that just come to faith wouldn't be able to articulate it that well. But the bottom line is, they're no longer trusting in themselves for salvation. They, they're trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. They're not there because they've attained it or because they've added to their faith or anything like that, because they feel worthy. They're there precisely because they're not worthy. Someone at, at one point um, had seen me make a mistake and deliberately sin. And right after, saw me at church worshiping Jesus. And they came to me and said, hey, I don't understand how you can act like everything's hunky-dory between you and God after what you just did. And I said, oh, I think there's a misunderstanding. It's, it is my sin that drives me to the cross. My sin, actually, in that sense enhanced my worship because I'm that much more aware of my need for him. It pushed me to Jesus. It's not the, the going to church is not with the, well, once I get myself all spiffied out, then I'm going to come and then I can worship. It is no, I need God even more. My sin drives me to the cross. That's Christianity. That's the gospel. No matter what you've done, the moment you believe in Jesus Christ, he treats you as if you've done everything that Jesus Christ has done. It's amazing. He sees you as perfect because you're in Christ. That's the gospel. And we need not be ashamed of it. It's incredible. But people reject it all the time. 
And they reject it primarily for uh, well a few different reasons, and yet they're not, they're not really different at all. One group will say, well, that's primitive. In fact, I just talked to somebody last week that I was sharing the gospel with, and, that, and they said, well, that's primitive and quite frankly insulting. I'm not that bad of a person. To describe my brokenness in terms of evil and, and, and an enemy of God, I, I, I take great insult to that. Sure, I'm not perfect, but I'm not a bad person. I'm a good-willed individual that's doing the best I can, and that's just super insulting. In other words, I don't need God's grace. I'm doing just fine, pretty much. Thank you very much. Leave me alone. But the other way people reject the gospel is to say, oh, it's way too easy. I know that I'm not what I should be, but I don't take any, this is what I call the American way. I don't take anything for free. I work for what I get. And if I made a mistake, I'm going to make, by golly, I'm going to make restitution for it. I'm going to make amends. I'll go out and I'll make it right. I'll even it out. That's what, that's how I was raised. I was raised like that. We take nothing for free. Or another way is to say, I'm too terrible for God's grace. God could never accept me after what I've done. I have to make restitution and clean myself up. I could never come to him as I am. One, on one side, grace is rejected because they seem to be say, saying they're too good. I don't need grace. I'm fine. I'm not perfect, but I'm fine. But on the other side, on the other hand, grace is rejected because people are saying, I'm too bad. I think I'm too bad for God's grace. But according to our text this morning, they're both deliberate sin. And deliberate sin because of pride. Because what is our definition of sin this morning? Anything that rejects Jesus and his work on the cross, anything that rejects him, no matter what your motive is or reason or philosophy behind it, anything is deliberate sin. They're both sin because sin is anything that resists the grace of God. So in other words, superiority complexes and inferiority complexes are both sin according to our text this morning because they, they both reject the grace of Jesus. In both cases, they are saying, I want to earn it, or I should be able to earn it. The only difference is that one, group's think, one group thinks they have earned it, and the other group thinks they can't. Yet, but they both think they should. But they're basically the same. They're both self-centered. They're both based on pride, and they're both sin. Or, how about, or here's another angle. How about this one? Um, I know God, maybe you've heard this or maybe you've said this to yourself. I know God forgives me, but can you finish this? I can't forgive myself. Have you heard that one before? Maybe you felt that way. I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. And if you look carefully at that, you will find that it also fits our description of what deliberate sin is this morning in our, in our text. Here's why. What someone is saying when they say, I know, that, I know that according to the Bible, the biblical God forgives me no matter what I've done, but I just can't let it go. I can't forgive myself. What you are saying underneath that is that God's verdict in saying that, it, that he's satisfied for my sin isn't my verdict. I have a higher rubric for how I should be living. I should be living better than that. I know that's God's thing, but it's not mine. There's some other standard that is, the, that is really in control of my life, not his standard and not his grace and not his son. There's another standard that's really driving me functionally. In other words, my real God is cursing me. The biblical God standard isn't enough. You don't want God's grace. You don't want his charity. You want to earn his grace and you're not, and you're, um, and you're not earning his grace and there's the problem. And as a result, you look really humble. People look super humble from that position. You know, they're beating themselves up. They're feeling depressed. They're down on themselves. But the Bible, according to our definition here, would say, you're still sinning. This is sin. According to this definition and this angle of the idea of sin, this is sin and it's willful sin because it's a rejection of God's grace. If the knowledge that God loves you today, no matter what you've done, doesn't thrill you, if you say, I don't need that, I'm fine, or if you say, it's not good enough for me, I'm such a wreck, God can't forgive me, in both cases, we're sinning. And what happens to people that commit a sin like that? I mean, 
Again, look at verse 26. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. For those who reject Jesus and his work for us, there is no other sacrifice that will work for you. There's no other system, or another way the Bible puts it, there is no other name under heaven given given by God by which men must be saved. This is the exclusivity of the Bible. There is one way. It's not like you say, well, I'll reject Jesus, and if it turns out that there's a God, my moral goods, I'm, I'm sure, will make sure I'll go to heaven. That's what a lot of people think. Well, if it turns out there is, I'm sure he'll, he'll, be, he'll be like, oh, you're good. Like God grades on a curve. <clears throat> Some people, um, there's other people who come to church and wear the name Christian but in reality, reject Jesus because they're trying to save themselves through their church attendance or their religious observance or observing rituals. And if that's the case, if you find yourself here for those reasons, I want to let you know you're in the wrong system. You're in an obsolete system. There is no sacrifice for your sins under that kind of regime and under that system. There's one, and it's the work of Jesus. And there's some beautiful consequences for society for thinking along those lines. If the sacrifice of Jesus is rejected in any way, there remains no sacrifice for sins. And right away, um, our culture and, and any modern person is very uncomfortable because of this exclusive language here. He's saying there's no other way to God but this one, this one way. One of our culture's greatest obstacles to accepting Christianity is its it's exclusivity, and yet in this passage, there is no negotiating or compromise. It's, it's, this, is where, this is one of those passages where the Bible and our culture, will, will all, they will knock their head against a brick wall every time. The Bible does not budge on this spot, and you can hear the language here. Our culture would say, I want to meet God, but I want to meet, I'm a very, especially Seattle, I'm very spiritual, I'm open to spirituality, I want to meet God, but I want to meet him on my own terms. And the, and the Bible would say, sorry, I want to share myself with you, but it must be through my son. It must be. He's my heart. Again, go back to the analogy of noble, which makes me cringe even to use it, but let's say I, gave him for you, and you said, hey, uh, no thanks, but let's still be friends. Not possible. Mm-mm, not possible. Not having you over, no game nights, no coffee. No, I gave my son for you. You've rejected him. We can't be, I want to get to know you, Mike, but you know, on my own terms. Uh-uh, the stakes are too high. The gift was too precious. You see, this is the, the feel you get from the Bible. There's a lot I can compromise on, the, the, the God would say, the God of the Bible would say, but this part, he's my son. I gave him for you. This part, I'm not, I'm not moving. He's my boy. And there lies the cosmic tension between mankind and God. That's the problem. Anyone who tries to save themselves in their own strength is rejecting Jesus Christ because there is no other sacrifice that can cleanse us from our sins. It's that simple. And for those who reject reject it, the news is heavy. Look at verse 27. For those who reject Jesus and what he's done, here's what... Only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Okay, now here's something, another thing that our culture hates when it comes to Christianity, and that is the judgment of God or the idea that God's wrath comes upon someone who rejects Christianity. This is something that you'll run into often when you start to engage the culture and when you start to say, as soon as you say, I'm a Christian, these are some of the things that are going to come up in folks' minds. Oh, you think I'm going to hell because I reject your doctrine. You think God's going to squish me like an ant because I don't accept him. That's what you think, right? That's what people are going to think. <clears throat> and a lot of the reason why we don't like this is because it's, it's a misunderstanding. I've heard people say to me, I've written down some almost direct quotes from conversations I've had, is God so volatile and insecure that when someone rejects him, he just hauls off and sends them to hell? That's what someone has said to me. 
As if God just kind of loses his temp- temper and has a, throws a tantrum at humanity's expense. But in ancient literature and throughout the Bible, listen, this is very important for us to understand. Judgment doesn't depict an authority figure losing his temper, but rather it speaks of, here's a, a direct um, ancient Near East definition. Judgment speaks of settled judicial condemnation. In other words, God's wrath and judgment come to bear on sin simply because sin deserves to be punished. It's just that simple. When you reject God's one and only answer to to our problem, then you are incurring wrath upon yourself because your sin must be punished. The writer is saying, you're not just mistaken. Here's what our text is saying. You're not just mistaken, you are guilty and you deserve to be punished. That's as straightforward as it is. I'm not mad at you because you have a misunderstanding. I'm mad at you because of a willful act of injustice that needs to be corrected. Trying to save yourself is the apex of pride and arrogance in the Bible. Now, let me try to explain the pushback um, that you will get from our culture. Because... um, there's a lot of this in our culture and even in, 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 quite frankly, even in the Christian culture, unfortunately. A few years ago, I was talking uh, to a young father who was considering Christianity, but also pretty strongly rejecting it. His kids were in my youth group, so he, he and I were forced into a relationship and, and we actually became um, pretty good friends. I think to, to his surprise, we, we became buddies and started palling around. We got in a lot of really great conversations. And um, he loved Christianity in terms of the way of life and its social values. He thought family is good. Um, it keeps the society of life together. All of that stuff is good. I just don't want Jesus, is what he would say. He wanted to, he saw great value of, of me and our church and his children's life because he um, wanted them to be raised those ways. And one point we were on a hike and he said to me, hey, listen, look, can I ask you a question? I'm a good person. I love Christianity. Why can't I just live that way and why do I need Jesus to go with it? Why can't I just take that part of Christianity and why do I need Jesus? And this guy, like I said, he loved his kids, loved his children. And so I said to him, well, let me ask you this. What if after you've done all you can for your kids, you've given them every opportunity, even set aside your own Um, retirement so that they can go to school. You're teaching them to be honest, to work hard, um, to be loving people. What if they go away and they do that and they go to college and they become everything you want them to be except they want nothing to do with you? They lose touch with you completely and completely reject you as your father. Now let me ask you, is it right to simply live a good life, but then ignore the one person to, to whom you owe everything? No. You are culpable. You're guilty at that point. Your kids would be nothing. They owe everything to you. And for them to take all that and then reject you is guilt in its purest, rawest form. See, if there is a God and you say, If there is a God and you say, well, I'm not religious, but I'm living a pretty good life, and isn't that what's most important? The answer is a loud from the Bible, no, that's not what's most important. It's just as culpable and condemnable if your kids did that to you. If there is a God to whom you owe everything and you live a good life but ignore God and and don't make your relationship with him the center of everything, because you owe him everything, you're guilty. It's condemnable, it's scandalous, and a Christian understands this. And for this reason, verse 31 says, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Again, the gift is just too great. It's a fearful thing indeed to one day face the God that you've rejected. If you want to trample on the Son of God underfoot, you're going to to have to square with that someday. You need to understand that. And I I hope that puts compassion in your heart for the people that you run into in life. Someday, they will be held accountable 
for their flippant decision to say, well, I just, I'm, Christianity's not for me. Even if they don't mean anything disrespectful by it, they will have to square with that God and, and hold account to that decision. How much more for us to plead like Paul the Apostle did? He reasoned with people. He pleaded with people. He cared about people because he knew it's not chocolate or vanilla. It's life or death, eternal life or death. I'll never forget, I don't remember who it is, so you want to be able to look this up. I was watching a YouTube video of an atheist. uh, I think he was a magician, pretty famous atheist magician type fellow. Anyways, he was talking about, he was doing like a video blog of Christianity. And he said, here's the reason I don't believe Christianity. And I, this, this, this was so powerful. He said, if Christianity were true, how come more Christians aren't pleading with me to believe what they believe? If you really believe, he said, he's looking right into the camera, he said, if you really believe that I'm going to spend an eternity in hell away from God, how selfish do you have to be not to plead with me? Even if you know I'll reject you, even if you know I'll hate you for it, even if you know I'll reject it, how selfish do you have to be not to plead with me to accept if you really believe it? He goes, so I don't, I don't think you people really believe it. Because if you did, you'd be pleading with the world if you really believed it. It was chilling. It's much better to fall into God's arms of love, the arms of a loving Savior, than to fall into the hands of a living God. And because we know that, how much more compelled should we to be to plead with the ones we love? Now, he's going to tell us what we can do about this. He tells them to look at the past and to look at the future. This is a a brief point because I'm attempting to cut down my sermons. Look at verse 32. He says, remember those earlier days. Here's how, you can keep it. Here's how you can stay away from this deadly, deadly sin. Here's his advice. Here's the prescription for the problem. He says, for one, it deals with the past and the future. Number one, look at the verse 32. He says, remember. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light that you endured in great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had had a lasting possession. That's the future tense. He's now encouraging them to remember how they endured really tough times before because of Jesus. He's saying, remember those early days when you already suffered for the sake of the Christian gospel. You were mocked. You went through trials. You sacrificed for Jesus. Why would you give that up now? In other words, you've got skin in the game. You're invested in this. You lost your property. Why turn away now? I, I was listening uh, to the same perspective on marriage the other day on the radio. I can't remember who it was that I was listening to. Darn it. But at one point, the person on the radio was saying that his, his parents were considering a divorce after like 25 years of marriage. It was really tough because marriage is tough. Marriage is hard. And he talked to his dad years later and he said, Dad, why didn't you and, your mom, why didn't you and, and mom ever divorce? And the dad said, a very practical wisdom. He said, you know why? Because we both thought, okay, it took us 25 years to get this far. Why would I want to start all over again with another person? And I thought about that and I thought, okay, the, the assumption today when people get divorced is there's somebody else out there that we won't have all these problems. But it was so wise of this man to go, no, 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 it's just I have to start, I have to start all over, getting to know a whole other person and their set of issues and they have to learn to adjust to my set of issues. Why would I do that? I've, I've already got, I'm invested with this woman. And yeah, it's hard, but I love her. And we've got, we've got investment together. That's kind of the argument here, except on a grander scale. Look, look what you've given up for Jesus. You're invested on this. Why would you give this up now? 
You were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. Um, this, is, this is where we're at in our culture, and I don't want to minimize it. I hear a lot of pastors say, you know, hey, at least we don't have to die, which is true in, in Western culture. No one at this point is going to kill you because of your faith. But that's not to minimize the injury of insults too. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard. I think we living in, Christians living in Seattle get this. It is very difficult to be a Christian in this city because of things that are spoken insults and unspoken insults. You can feel it in the air, can't you? As soon as you say, well, I'm a Christian, immediately all sorts of things come up in that person's mind that are put on you. Oh, were you one of the ones that stormed the Capitol? (laughs) Oh, or did, you know, oh, you're probably anti-vax, or oh, you're this, or you're that, or oh, you hate these people, and you hate those people. All sorts of things come up. Oh, you're, you're not very intelligent, because you believe in an ancient book. Someone just said that to me last week. I'm not going to make my decisions on some old book. And it's hard. Insults can be a very heavy burden to bear, Most people in Seattle think that we're stupid, idiotic for believing in the Bible. They think we're closed-minded, uneducated, intolerant. They think all of those things when they hear the word Christian. It's reasonable to assume that Christians are going to be more mocked this year, even more than last year. I I I think we should brace ourselves for that. We're not going to win any popularity contests anytime soon. Verse 34 says that they were also persecuted economically. Look, it says, You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Did you know that throughout church history, and even in some parts of the world today, this is one of the first ways, the most ways that Christians have been persecuted, and that's economically. They don't get that raise, they're denied education. They don't get certain, uh, certain uh, benefits that everyone else gets. For example, um, in the old communist world, outspoken Christians couldn't get into university systems. True. Fact. Historical fact. They were persecuted. Or they'd have special taxes and have their things robbed. The point is, they faced many things, and they had to endure many things, and they could, they could take a look at their past and be encouraged. When the early church faced their persecution, here's, the, the, here's, the, uh, the, here's what makes the early church so, um, so incredible. When the early church faced persecutions, they by and large did it without hating the people persecuting them. That's a shot to me. It's hard for me to, to take insult and just take it. It's very hard to actually love the person that's hating me. That was a mark of the early church. That was the mark of early Christianity. They actually loved and extended grace and heartfelt kindness to the people that were hurting them. Why? My theory, they were closer to the cross, historically. The cross was a recent event. Someone had just displayed that and they could not reconcile their own lives without having a, what we call, cruciform life themselves, a cross-shaped life to go forward in, in their own way. How did they make it? Well, their present and their past was affected by their future. Look, he says, because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. They did it knowing that this was not the end. They didn't forget about heaven. So the confiscation of their stuff here, it was a bummer, but it didn't wreck them. Heaven heaven to them wasn't just dogma or rhetoric. It was real. They could feel it. It It was a living, functional reality in their lives. I read an article recently that said uh, from an anthropologist who said no other society in history has, has not prepared its members for suffering like the Western culture. This anthropologist said every other culture in, the, in, in 
in history and in most of the places today give, give its members mechanisms by which to handle suffering. In other words, things like, hey, you're suffering, but it's, it's good for your clan. It's good for society. You're taking a hit so that your sister can succeed. You're doing this for the family. So there were social uh, mechanisms that got you through to endure the suffering that you would take. Or it could have been a spiritual mechanism. Hey, this is going to make heaven even better. Um, Those types of things are ways that cultures have given to their members to handle suffering. The modern culture says there is no God, there is no hereafter, and not only that, it's all about you and no one else. This is an individualistic society. Therefore, there can be no purpose for suffering at all. So when we suffer as a Western society, we freak out because we can't see a reason for this. We can't see any good beyond it. If I can't see any good for it, then there must not be, we would say. Because everything has a natural cause. Everything has a, a, an explanation that I can see. And it's all about me. The Bible is much more robust than that. And says, yes, suffering, the Bible would say, is not just inevitable. Listen, people, I gotta warn you about this. I would be derelict in my duty as a pastor and a Bible teacher, if I didn't tell you this, suffering in the Bible is not just inevitable. Your suffering is necessary to bring redemption to this world. Where do you find that, Mike? In the cross. The heart of the gospel. Jesus redeemed by dying and suffering. He showed his power not by putting it on us, but by absorbing abuse. And it wasn't, and he made it clear if you want to follow me, you take up your cross and you do that daily. In other words, this is not just an event that if you believe in it, you'll go to a place called heaven after you die. That's Jesus, that's not that's that's not the fullest example of the body. That's certainly that. But more than that was. This is, a, this is something that you take in and make a part of your life every day so you bring heaven to earth. Your death will bring heaven to your family, to your marriage when you take up your cross daily and follow him. So don't shrink back. There's a purpose. You're bringing the future glory eschatological glory, the future glory of God, by you suffering, you're bringing it, you're pulling it from the future and you're bringing it to bear on the present situation. There is purpose, great purpose in your suffering. Amen? Amen. Amen. So don't shrink back, dear people. We're in this together. Jesus, thank you for this message. Help us to absorb it and appropriate it into every part of our lives and that is a work of your Spirit. That is the Holy Spirit's work. We can't manufacture it or produce it or make it happen in our own strength. So Holy Spirit, I pray that today you would bring this from our mind into our heart and making an experience that we would not just know, but feel saved and grateful in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.